0: This is Holden Karnofsky doing an amateur read-through of my blog post, debating myself on whether extra lives lived are as good as deaths prevented. And uh, my wife will also be joining me because it's a dialogue. We'll get to that. If we could do something to lower the probability of the human race going extinct, that would be really good. But how good? Is preventing extinction more like saving 8 billion lives, the number of people alive today, or saving 80 billion lives, the number of who will be alive over the next 10 generations, or maybe saving 625 quadrillion lives, which is an estimate of the number of people who could ever be born, or saving an even comically huger number of lives. One essay that I linked to argues for well over 10 to the 46th power as the total number of people who could ever exist. More specifically, is a person getting to live a good life when they otherwise would have never existed the kind of thing we should value? Is it as good as a premature death prevented? Among effective altruists, it's common to answer yes. Preventing extinction is somewhere around as good as saving some crazy number of lives, So if there's any way to reduce the odds of extinction by even a tiny amount, that's where we should focus all the attention and resources we can. I feel very conflicted about this. I am sold on the importance of specific, potentially extinction-level risks, such as risks from advanced AI, which I linked to my most important century series. But this is mostly because I think the risks are really, really big and really, really neglected. I think they'd be worth focusing on even if we ignored arguments like the above and used much more modest estimates of how many people might be affected. I'm less sold that we should work on these risks if they were very small. And I have very mixed feelings about the idea that a person getting to live a good life when they otherwise would have never existed is as good as a premature death prevented. Reflecting these mixed feelings, I'm going to examine the philosophical case for caring about extra lives lived, which is putting aside other cases for caring about extinction risk. And I'll do this via a dialogue between two versions of myself, utilitarian Holden and non-utilitarian Holden. This represents actual dialogues I've had with myself, so neither side is a pure straw person, although this particular dialogue serves primarily to illustrate the utilitarian side's views and how they are defended against initial and or basic objections from the non-utilitarian. And I'm using the same utilitarian, non-utilitarian terms that I've used previously, even though this is about kind of what what type or what branch of utilitarianism to use. In future dialogues, the non-utilitarian will raise more sophisticated objections. This is part of a set of dialogues on future-proof ethics, which is trying to make ethical decisions that we can remain proud of in the future after a great deal of societal and or personal moral progress. Previous dialogues are here and here, and I link, although this one does stand on its own if you haven't read them. A Couple more notes before I finally get started with the dialogue. First, the genre here is philosophy, and a common type of argument is the thought experiment. So it's something like, if you had to choose between A and B, what would you choose? For example, is it better to prevent one untimely death or to allow 10 people to live who would otherwise never have been born? Now, it's common to react to questions like this with comments like, I don't really think that kind of choice comes up in real life. Actually, you can usually get both A and B if you do things right, or actually A isn't possible. The underlying assumptions about how the world really works are off here. My general advice when considering philosophy is to avoid reactions like this, and think about what you would do if you really had to make the choice that is being pointed at, even if you think the author's underlying assumptions about why the choice exists are wrong. Similarly, if you find one part of an argument unconvincing, I suggest pretending you accept it for the rest of the piece anyway to see whether the rest of the arguments would be compelling under that assumption. I often do give an example of how one could face a choice between two things in real life to make it easier to imagine, but it's not feasible to give this example in enough detail and with enough defense to make it seem realistic to all readers without a big distraction. Philosophy requires some amount of suspending disbelief because the goal is to ask questions about, for example, what you value while isolating them from questions about what you believe. And then a note on uh, formatting. Basically, uh, yeah, because it's two voices having a dialogue. As I mentioned, I'm going to play Utilitarian Holden, and my wife Daniela is going to play Non-Utilitarian Holden. So it's two sides of myself, and this dialogue is mostly about exposition for Utilitarian Holden's views. But future dialogues, I think, will have kind of Non-Utilitarian Holden come roaring back. Although I'm sympathetic to a lot of what the Non-Utilitarian says here too. Okay, so dialogue on extra lives lived. You ready? Cool. Um, so I'm I'm starting off as Utilitarian Holden. So let's start here. Let's say that if humanity can avoid going extinct and perhaps spread across the galaxy, the number of people who will ever exist is about one quintillion, also known as a billion billion, or 10 to the 18th power. This is close to the Our World and Data estimate of the number of people who could ever live. It ignores the possibility of digital people, which could lead to a vastly, even more ridiculously big number. Now, if you think that's 1% likely to actually happen, it's an expected value of 10 to the 16 people, which is still huge enough to carry the rest of what I'm going to say. It's a huge number. You could think of it like this. Imagine all of the people who exist or ever could exist all standing in one place. There are about 10 billion such people alive today. That's a just big roundup. And the rest are just potential people. That means that more than 99.999% of all the people are potential people. And now imagine that we're all talking about where you, the person in the privileged position of being one of the earliest people ever, should focus your efforts to help others. And you say, gosh, I'm really torn. I think if I focus my efforts on today's world, maybe I can help prevent up to 10,000 untimely deaths. This would be a very high thing to aim for. Or I could cause a tiny decrease in extinction risk, like 1% of 1% of 1% of 1%, and that would help about 100 million people instead of 10,000. What should I do? Let's ignore the fact that helping people in today's world could also reduce extinction risk. It could, but it could also increase extinction risk. Who knows? So in that situation, I think everyone would be saying, how is this a question? Even if your impact on extinction risk is small, even if it's uncertain and fuzzy, There are just so many more people affected by that. If you choose to focus on today's world, you're essentially saying that you think today's people count more than 10,000 times as much as future people. Now, granted, most of the people alive in your time do act that way. They ignore the future. But someday, if society becomes morally wiser, that will look unacceptable. Or just if you become morally wiser, you'll probably regret it. Basically deciding that 99.999% of one's fellow humans aren't worth worrying about just because they don't exist yet doesn't seem right. Do the forward-looking thing, the future-proof thing. Focus on helping the massive number of people who don't exist yet.
1: I feel like you are skipping a really big step here. We're talking about what potential people who don't exist yet would say about giving them a chance to exist. Does that even make sense? That is, it sounds like you're counting every potential person as someone whose wishes we should be respecting, including their wish to exist instead of not exist. So, among other things, that means a larger population is better? Yes. Huh. I mean, that's super weird, right? Like. Is it ethically obligatory to have as many children as you
0: can? It's not, for a bunch of reasons. The biggest one for now is that we're focused on what i previously called, and I linked to it, thin utilitarianism. How to make choices about actions like donating and career choice, not how to make choices about everything. For questions like how many children to have, I think there's much more scope for a multidimensional morality that isn't all about respecting the interests of others. I also generally think we're liable to get confused if we're talking about reproductive decisions, because reproductive autonomy is such an important value. And one that has historically been undermined at times in ugly ways. My views here are not about reproductive decisions, they're about avoiding existential catastrophes. Long-termists, who people who focus on the long-run future, as I'm advocating here, tend to focus on things that could affect the ultimate long-run population of the world. It's actually really unclear how having children or not affects that, because the main factors behind the ultimate long-run population have more to do with things like the odds of extinction and of explosive civilization-wide changes. And it's unclear having children, how having children affects those. So let's instead stay focused on the question I asked. That is, if you prevent an existential catastrophe so that there's a large, flourishing future population, does each of those future people count as a beneficiary of what you did, such that their benefits aggregate up to a very large number?
1: Okay, I say no. Such potential future people do not count. And I'm not moved by your story about how this may one day look cruel or inconsiderate. It's not that I think some types of people are less valuable than others. It's that I don't think increasing the odds that someone ever exists at all is benefiting them.
0: Let's briefly walk through a few challenges to your position. You can learn more about these challenges from the academic population ethics literature, such as Hillary Greaves' short piece on this, which I linked to. All right, challenge one, future people and the mere edition paradox. So you say you don't see potential future people as beneficiaries whose interests count, but let's say that the worst effects of climate change won't be felt for another 80 years or so. In which case, the vast majority of people affected will be people who are not alive today. Do you discount those folks and their interests?
1: No, but that's different. Climate change isn't about whether they get to exist or not. It's about whether their lives go better or worse.
0: I think it's about both. The world in which we contain or prevent or mitigate climate change contains completely different people in the future from the world in which we don't. Any difference between two worlds will ripple chaotically and affect things like which sperm fertilize which eggs, and that'll completely change the future people that exist. So you really can't point to some fixed set of people that is affected by climate change. Your desire to mitigate climate change is really about causing there to be better off people in the future instead of completely different, worse off people. It's pretty hard to maintain this position while also saying that you only care about actual rather than potential people or present people rather than future people.
1: I can still take the position that if there are a certain number of people, it's good to do something such as mitigate climate change that causes there to be better off people instead of worse off people. But that doesn't mean that it's good for there to be more people than there would be otherwise. Adding more people is just neutral, assuming they have reasonably good lives. I think that's going
0: to be a tough position to maintain. So consider three possible worlds. World A, 5 billion people have good lives. Let's just call that an 8 out of 10 on some relevant scale. And that's a simplification, just trying to capture the idea that these are these are good lives. World B, 5 billion future people have slightly better than good lives, which we can think of as an 8.1 out of 10. And there's a bit more on the numbers in a footnote. And there are an additional 5 billion people who have not as good, but still pretty good lives, like a 7 out of 10. And then world C has 10 billion future people who have those 8 out of 10 good lives. So if you stack these three next to each other, my guess is that you think world B seems clearly better than world A. Because in world B, there's 5 billion better off instead of worse off future people. And then we've added 5 billion people, and that seems neutral. It's not good. It's not bad. I'd also guess, though, that you think world C seems clearly better than world B the change, a small worsening in quality of life for the better off half of the population and a large improvement for the worse off half. So again, that's going from 5 billion people at 8.1 out of 10, 5 billion at 7 out of 10 to just 10 billion at 8 out of 10. So if you think World C is better than World B, and World B is better than World A, doesn't that mean World C is better than World A? And World C is the same as World A, just a bigger population. This is audio a little confusing. So I'm gonna run through the table really quickly. You have world A is 5 billion people at 8 out of 10. World B is 5 billion people at 8.1 out of 10 and 5 billion people at 7 out of 10. So that should be better because you just added a bunch of people and then you made the first set better off. And world C is 10 billion people with 8 out of 10, which looks better than world B. So you end up with 10 billion people at 8 out of 10 is better than 5 billion people at 8 out of 10.
1: I admit that my intuitions are what you say. I prefer B when comparing it to A and C when comparing it to B. However, when I look at C versus A, I'm not really sure what to think. Maybe there is a mistake somewhere. For example, maybe I should think that it's bad for additional people to come to exist. In that
0: case, you should think that the human race going extinct would actually just be great. That would prevent massive numbers of people from ever existing. And more people is bad?
1: Um, that is definitely not where I am. Okay, uh, you've successfully got me puzzled about what's going on in my brain. Before I try to process it, how about you confuse me some more?
0: Sure thing. Challenge two, asymmetry. Let's talk about another problem with the attempt to be neutral on whether there are more or fewer people in the future. Say that you can take some action to prevent a horrible dystopia from arising in a distant corner of the galaxy. In this dystopia, the vast majority of people will wish they didn't exist, but they won't have that choice. You have the opportunity to ensure that instead of this dystopia, there will simply be nothing there. Does that opportunity seem valuable?
1: It does, enormously so.
0: So the broader intuition here is that preventing lives that are worse than non-existence has very high ethical value. Does that seem right? Yes. So now you're in a state where you think preventing bad lives is good, but preventing good lives is neutral. And the thing is, every time your life comes into existence, there's some risk it will be really bad, so bad that the person will wish they didn't exist. So if you count the bad as bad, and you count the good as neutral, then you should think that each future life is just a bad thing. There's some chance it's bad, there's some chance it's neutral. You should want to minimize future lives. Or at the civilization level, say that if humanity continues existing, there's a 99% chance we'll have an enormous flourishing civilization, like 10 to the 18 people and a 1% chance will end up in an equally enormous, horrible dystopia. And even the flourishing civilization of well, some people in it who wish they didn't exist won't be perfect. Confronting this possibility, according to what you've been saying, you should hope that humanity doesn't continue existing, since there won't be any of these people who wish they didn't exist if humanity just goes extinct. So again, compared to a 99% chance of a huge utopia, 1% chance of a huge dystopia, you should think that extinction is really great.
1: Uh, yikes. Like I said, I absolutely don't think that. So then I think the
0: most natural way out of this is to just admit that a huge flourishing civilization would be good enough to compensate, at least partly, for the risk of a huge dystopia. That is, if you're fine with a 99% chance of a flourishing civilization and a 1% chance of a dystopia, this implies that a flourishing civilization is at least 1% as good as a dystopia is bad. And that implies that 10 to the 18 flourishing lives are at least 1% as good as 10 to the 18 horribly suffering lives are bad. And so then you get to these huge numbers again.
1: Well, you've definitely made me feel confused about what I think about this topic, but that isn't the same thing as convincing me that it's good for there to be more people. I see how trying to be neutral about population size leads to some weird implications, but so does your position. For example, if you think that adding more lives has ethical value, you end up with what's called the repugnant conclusion. Actually, let's skip that and talk about the very repugnant conclusion. I'll give my own set of hypothetical worlds. World D has 10 to the 18 flourishing happy people. World E has 10 to the 18 horribly suffering people, plus some even larger number of people whose lives are mediocre, fine, worth living, but not good. There has to be some larger number N, such that you would prefer World E to World D. That's a pretty wild-seeming position, too. Next section, Theory X.
0: That's true. There's no way of handling questions like these, aka population ethics, that feels totally satisfactory for every imaginable case.
1: Well, that you know of, but there may be some way of disentangling our confusions about this topic that leaves the anti-repugnant conclusion intuition intact and leaves mine intact too. I'm not really feeling the need to accept one wrong-seeming view just to avoid another one.
0: Well, you're saying there's some way of disentangling our confusions, and that's what Derek Parfit called Theory X. Population ethicists have looked for a theory like that for a while, and they've not only not found it, they've produced impossibility theorems heavily implying that it does not exist at all. That is, the various intuitions we want to hold on to, such as the very repugnant conclusion is false and extinction would not be good, and various others, collectively contradict each other. You kind of have to pick something weird to believe about this whole question of is it good for there to be more people. And if we have to pick something, I'm going to go ahead and pick what's called the total view. That's the view that we should maximize the sum total of the well-being of all persons. You could think of this as if our potential beneficiaries include all persons who could ever exist, and getting to exist is a benefit that is capable of overriding significant harms. There is more complexity to the total view than this. It's not the focus of this piece. I'm just focusing on this very simple idea of basically adding up all the good in the world. I do think there are a number of good reasons to pick this general approach. First, it's simple. If you try to come up with some view that thinks human extinction is neither the best nor the worst thing imaginable, your view is probably gonna have all kinds of complicated and unmotivated seeming moving parts, like the asymmetry between good and bad lives discussed above. But the idea behind the total view is simple it just counts everyone including potential someones as persons whose interests are worth considering simplicity fits well into my goal of systemizing ethics which i linked to a past discussion of so my system is more robust and relies on fewer intuitions second having considered the various options for which weird view to take on i think the very repugnant conclusion is actually fine does pretty well against its alternatives it's totally possible that our intuitive aversion to the very repugnant conclusion which again is that you can, you can outweigh any amount of suffering by just having a huge number of people with barely worth living lives, I think our aversion may come from just not being able to wrap our brains around some aspect of how huge the numbers of barely worth living lives would have to be, or something that is just confusing about the idea of making it possible for additional people to exist. And is it really so unintuitive anyway? Imagine you learned that some person made a costly effort to prevent your ancestors' deaths a thousand years ago, and now you are here today because of them. Aren't you glad you exist? Don't you think your existence counts as part of the good that person accomplished? I link to a blog post with more of this kind of thinking. Is your take on the fact that 10 to the
1: 18 people
0: might or might not get to exist really just it doesn't matter?
1: Maybe part of what's confusing here is something like, I'm not indifferent to extra happy lives. They are better than nothing, definitely. But if the only or main kind of way I was improving the world was allowing extra happy lives to exist, that wouldn't be right. So maybe extra lives matter up to some point and then matter less, or maybe it's true that an extra life is a good thing, but not that lots of extra lives can be more important than helping people who are already here.
0: That approach is possible, but it would contradict some of the key principles of other-centered ethics discussed previously. I previously argued that once you think something counts as a benefit with some amount of value, then a high enough amount of that thing can swamp everything else. In the example we used previously, enough of helping someone have a nice day at the beach can outweigh helping someone avoid a tragic death.
1: Hmm, if this were a philosophy seminar, I would think you were making a perfectly good case here. But the feeling I have at this juncture is not so much, ah, yes, I see how all of those potential lives are a great ethical good as I kind of feel like I've been tricked or talked into seeing no alternative to something I disagree with. I don't need to pick a theory. I can zoom back out to the big picture and say, doing things that will make it possible for more future people to exist is not what I signed up for when I set out to donate money to make the world a better place. It's not the case that addressing today's injustices and inequities can be outweighed by that goal. I don't need a perfectly consistent approach to population ethics. I don't need to follow, quote, rules when giving away money. I can do things that are uncontroversially valuable, such as preventing premature deaths and improving education. I can use math to maximize the amount of those things that I do. I don't need a master framework that lands in this weird place.
0: I think a lot of the detailed back and forth has obscured the fact that there are simple principles at play here. First, I want my giving to be about benefiting others to the maximum extent possible. I want to spend my money in the way that others would want me to if they were thinking about it fairly and impartially, as in the veil of ignorance construction. If that's what I want, then giving that can benefit enormous numbers of persons is generally going to look best. I discussed that previously. Then there's a question of who counts as others that I can benefit. 2 potential people who may or may not end up getting to exist? I need a position on this. Once I let someone into the moral circle, if there are a ton of them, they're going to be the ones I'm concerned about. On balance, it seems like potential people who may or may not end up getting to exist probably belong in the moral circle. That is, there's a high chance that a more enlightened ethical me or a more enlightened ethical society would recognize this uncontroversially. Now, I might end up getting it wrong and doing zero good, and so might you, but I'm taking my best shot at avoiding the moral prejudices of my day and focusing my giving on helping others to find fairly and expansively. And I have some links to further reading. And final section, uh, dialogue's over. This is closing thoughts. I feel a lot of sympathy for the closing positions of both of these characters. I think something like utilitarian Holden's views do, in fact, give me the best shot available at an ethics that is highly other-centered and future-proof, things I've talked about before. But as I've pondered these arguments, I've simultaneously become more compelled by some of the utilitarian Holden's unusual views and less convinced that it's so important to pursue an other-centered or future-proof ethics. At some point in the future, I'll argue that these ideals are probably unattainable anyway, which weakens my commitment to them. Ultimately, if we put this in a frame of deciding how to spend a billion dollars, the arguments in this and previous pieces would move me to spend a chunk of it on targeting existential risk reduction, but probably not the majority, if they were the only arguments for targeting existential risk reduction, which I don't think they are. I find the utilitarian Holden side, which I've been voicing, compelling, but not wholly convincing. However, there is a different line of reasoning for focusing on causes like AI risk reduction, which doesn't require unusual views about population
1: ethics. That's the case I presented in the Most Important Century series, and I find it significantly more compelling.